This sermon, Two Kinds of Kingdoms, was preached by Tom Wilkins on Sunday, June 4th, 2023 at Sovereign Grace Church. If you would open your Bibles to Psalm chapter 2. Psalm chapter 2. <laughs> Psalm 2. Yeah. Psalm 2. I think it'd be right to say this before we read it, and if you would stand, and we're going to read God's word here in a second, but I believe it'd be right to say this, that we are about to read the second half of really an overarching, um, what Spurgeon would call the preface to the whole book of Psalms, would be chapters one and chapter two. These two Psalms being held together in one unit. In chapter one, Derek so faithfully preached the word last week, and the word reveals in the opening sentence of chapter one, verse one, blessed is the man. Now here in a moment, we're gonna hear the very end of chapter two where we hear blessed are all, forming the bookends on this single preface to the whole book of Psalms. So let's read together God's word, Psalm chapter 2. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst our bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I'll make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with the rod of iron and Dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the sun lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. You may be seated. Please pray with me. Lord, thank you for continuing to introduce to us Psalms. 
inspired by your will. Men gifted and wrote under the inspiration of your Holy Spirit these words, your word to us. I pray, I pray that we would do two things. That we would look hopefully as to what's coming in the Psalms. Help us to anticipate what's coming as you, as it were, sing from heaven over us. And you give us words to sing back to you. Do that, Lord. But I also pray for this this morning, that these words, this section, that it would move us all the more near your holiness and that we would sense how wonderful and how awe-filled you are. And that we would see our need. That we would see our need for your son, Jesus. Do that for us. Help us to look forward. Help us to look forward to what's coming in the Psalms. And help us to see our need for your son, Jesus. Do that for us, Lord. Holy Spirit, we need your power at work. And Jesus, we so desire that you would be exalted. It's in your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. As we read the Psalms, you're going to discover that there are many genres, many types of Psalms. And this one in particular is written and sung as a royal song, as it's been referred to, a kingly psalm. So throughout this psalm, you're going you're to hear again and again about kings. You'll hear about kingdoms. You'll hear about rule. You'll hear about judgments. And it heralds, in particular, this one heralds the greatness of our God and King, the greatness of the King that God has placed over his people here, King David, for sure. And yet found in this royal psalm is an overarching, pointing down the way, pointing to the day to come, that prophetic proclamation of a coming king that will rule God's people on the throne of David, the promised Messiah king. This king is also a son. This king is the heavenly king, and he will rule over all the nations. Jesus is the son of God, this king, and the people and the kings of this world rage against him. My wife said this morning, I was going over the message as I leave the house. It's one of the smart things I try to do is to get a little bit to Lisa and then I hear just God's kindness. She said, why do 
the nations rage? Well, the answer is given right here in the text, and we're going to get to that. But we have here in the opening words of verse 1, why do the nations rage? And the people's plot in vain. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed saying, here's the answer, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. We're going to look at two points. And what I just read in verses 1 through 3 are the first point. I've summarized the Maybe the overarching statement of this point or this section is the kingdoms of this world rage. The kingdoms of this world rage. In verses 1 through 3, and you have those natural breaks that are within this psalm, those moments of pause that are like a subunit within the whole. You can see them actually in many of your translations. The writer will pause or the translator will pause and each one is a verse or a chorus or a bridge to this song. Stanzas in that sense. Each are serving to instruct us of the grander message and the movement. And here, verses 1 through 3 are driving home this point. The kingdoms of this world rage. The kings of this world, as they're referred to, of the earth, and the nature of their opposition to the sovereign Lord, they are not passive in their disregard for God. We find that here in the text. They rage. They don't kick back and disobey out of uh, sins of omission. Oh no, they're on the move. These nations are on the move. And you're going to see that already in these words, that there is a people, but then we find also this reference. So you see the peoples in verse 1, but now in verse 2, the kings. And what you're going to discover in this text and actually throughout the Psalms is often when the Lord is referring to the kings and these royal kind of songs, he's referring to the kings and their kingdoms, the kings and their subjects. The people rage against God. The kings rage against God. They lead the way, but remember the people have put these kings in at times. Verse 1, you have raging and plotting. They rage against the Lord. They plot against the Lord. Throughout the text is Yahweh, Yahweh, Yahweh. And in verse 2, they allied against God's king. So they rage and they plot, but they allied against God's king. They set themselves. They form alliances. In other words, they set themselves against. They form alliances with each other. We see that in verse 2. The earth set themselves. The rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed they set themselves and are allied against the Lord and they assemble against the king. His, now we hear it in there in verse 2, his anointed now begins to emerge and we'll hear of him often. They are assembling their troops. They're setting up lines of communication. They're plotting out their attacks. They're pooling resources. They are signing agreements with one another, setting up arms deals. They are really doing what? Well, the kings of this age do. Some of these hate one another, but not in this one. In this fight, their luck stepped together against God himself, agreeing on funding, organizing their propaganda campaigns, and so on. In verse 3, why? Because this is their desire. They desire to burst 
their bonds apart and cast away the cords. Anything that would tie them and require that they would follow the sovereign king, they are cutting all ties with him. Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us, referring to God's kingdom, the nation of Israel in particular, but God's kingdom throughout the ages. And this underlies all their motives and intentions and their scheming. And by the way, this is, thank God for Derek. I love getting Tim and Derek for three hours as they pour over the message with me yesterday. I never get into the pulpit on my own. I've either read of an old dead guy who has said several things, or I ride with two guys that are old but not yet dead. <laughs> and they offer their wisdom. And Derek says, this goes back to the garden. Well, here it is. The age-old problem is seated in the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve took counsel together and set themselves against their creator king. Desiring to be gods and kings themselves. In fact, it's safe to say, don't quote me on this as if it's error, but you'll probably remember, they become essentially the first king and queen of the kingdoms of this world. And the raging against the sovereign one began there. Kings of this world desire to be set free from God's rule, rebelling against any submission of his sovereign kingdom. And these kings are, in particular, in this case, Gentile kings who seek to cast off the Israelite rule led by King David, and they seek to rebel against him. But what we find out in the text They're aligned against God's kingdom. And God's kingdom is forever. God's kingdom is more than universal. It's not just King David. I'll remember that personally when you personally rage against the things about God that you, that you don't like or when you align yourself with the kingdoms of this world. Oh, remember, it's not just the kingdoms of this world. And it's not just a few things that you're doing that you would prefer to do and God would prefer you to do something else. You and I join the kingdoms of this world and we rage against the sovereign one. Kingdoms and governments and administrations and rulers of this world, they are in constant cosmic rebellion against God when they refuse to acknowledge him nor glorify him. Their depravity is revealed in their policies. And we cannot ignore the language of verses 1 through 3. And that counseling together, that banding together, their unrepentant hearts, these kingdoms, their unrepentant hearts, their slaughter of the innocent, their persecutions, their tyranny, their robbery, their bribery, their debauchery, their evil alliances are ultimately aimed directly at God himself. But notice something that I read right over. It's in verse one. They do all of this in vain. It's in vain. Oh, thank God he tells us and clues us in right up front. All of this raging, all of our raging against him, it's in vain.
how horrible the kingdoms of this world have been throughout the ages. Millions of people's lives that have been slaughtered and destroyed. Countless, countless lives wrecked. And yet God and his sovereign rule over it all says it's all in vain. They seem so powerful, don't they? The kingdoms of this world. I can imagine being a country that all of a sudden is under direct in my neighborhood attack with bombs dropping. I couldn't even imagine what that's like. I'm from a generation that's been radically protected from it. How is that in vain? It seems like they prosper. But yet, no matter how powerful they are, humanly speaking, all their efforts, according to God, are in vain. All of their plans will utterly fail, finally. All of their strength and might will be snuffed out like a moth that flutters into a fire. Their treasure will disappear into dust. Their mightiest men will fall dead in their own blood. In vain they rage. In vain they plot. In vain they set themselves against God. In vain they force their plans. They forge their plans and alliances. And in vain they can only dream of being set free from God's rule. How will it end? Oftentimes what our hearts cry. How will their plans come to nothing? Before we can even begin to consider that or even to leave that hanging in the air, am I not part of these earthly kingdoms myself? Here's the truth. We were of this kingdom. If we're in God's kingdom now, only by his grace, we were in this kingdom. Are you still in that kingdom, their kingdom? You know, if we war against God's things and against his desires and against his design, we are at war with them against him. We set ourselves against him. And that's why later in the Psalms, David will write, against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgments. Here's our dilemma. He defines our sexuality, but we want something different. He defines marriage. He defines our relationship, and we say no and go after what we want. He says to love, and we hate. He commands and demands purity and holiness, and we run as fast as we can into depravity. He rules us in grace, and we want tyrants to rule. Well, hopefully we now get to this next section. Point we've just looked at, the kingdoms of this world, they do rage on and on and on. Seemingly like nothing is going 
to stop them. This seems like they are going to go unanswered. Their last statement in verse 3, let us burst their bonds apart, cast away their cords from us. It seems like they get their way. They're free to do and to act. But now, the next section. Let's read together again. Verses 4. Verses 4 through 9. He who sits in the heavens, laughs, and the Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of, your, ends of the earth your possession. And you... Addressing that son, you shall break them with the rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. The kingdoms of this world do rage. Point one, but point two, thank God, sovereign king responds. The sovereign king responds. Verses four through six in particular, they reveal that answer to how will their plans come to nothing? Well, we begin to see it in how this king responds. The sovereign king of the universe responds in verse 4. He who sits in the heavens laughs, and the Lord holds derision on them. That is packed with almost unimaginable, hopeful, but larger than we could even fathom truths about God himself. He who sits in the heavens. Well, one, let's just talk about the place where he is. It is a joy to imagine what heaven must be like, where he is. But yet in his view of all the raging, of all the evil, and of all the wickedness of the world, he sits in heaven. Oh, I would expect him to be like me, standing and raging back against the nations, but there is an aspect revealed here in Psalm 2 that is actually shocking. He sits and he laughs. And there's this phrase afterwards, the Lord holds them in derision. He sits and he laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. He sits on his throne and no earthly king and no worldly kingdom has the power to even concern him enough to get him to stand. Imagine that. The sovereign one on high sits, and he laughs at their raging. That sitting and laughing, it reveals God's despising scorn on man's sinful and limited reign. The unlimited God scorns, scornfully despising their limited reign. And God's contemptuous mockery is revealed in that word of derision. And all of their pitiful plans and arrogant declarations of freedom from his rule, he mocks them as he sits unmoved in heaven. Kingdoms of this world will not be able to rage on and on and on. We now find no matter from our vantage point how desperate things seem to be, their wickedness has its end. But if you're present this morning and you're like, I'm good, I'm good in this kingdom. I'll take this. I like this. Oh, you have to hear your end 
is coming. Well, the good thing is, although he sits and he laughs, we now hear from him in verse 5. He now speaks. The sovereign king continues to respond. He responds by not being moved. He responds by laughing in mockery over the kings of this earth who have set out to mock him. Oh, no. And now he speaks. Verses 5 through 6. And I will speak to them in my wrath. He speaks to them in his wrath. And what he says and what he points to regarding their end shuts their mouths. He speaks to them in his wrath. He will not let the raging and rebellion go on. How will his contempt be revealed? How does his scorn bring an end to all of the fury? Because he speaks to them in wrath. And the result for them is they're terrified. They're terrified that God is coming in wrath. But don't miss this in verse 6. Look with me in verse 6. Verse 5, then he'll speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury. What about his wrath is terrifying? It's what he says next. As for me, I have set my king on Zion, on my holy hill. God says to the kings of this earth, I have my king already ruling over you. Spurgeon makes this statement. God has already done that which the enemy seeks to prevent. They want to cast off the bonds of God. They want to cast off the cords that God has bound them in his rule. Spurgeon says he has already done that which the enemy seeks to prevent. While they were proposing, he has disposed the matter. Jehovah's will is done, present tense. And man's will frets and raves in vain. God's anointed is appointed and shall not be disappointed. <laughs> Let Spurgeon say that. Let's say that again with Spurgeon. God's anointed is appointed and shall not be disappointed. There is something in the hearts of man, in the hearts of kings, that when God says, no, my king reigns, we know it. We believe it. And our next result is terror. Oh, now, wait a minute. Wait a minute, I thought that when God says that he's come as the reigning king, that we would rejoice, and actually we're going to discover what that is. But we have to see what this text is. The raging nations, the hateful people coming against God, starting in the garden, has gone throughout the ages, raging against God. They must be brought to terror. And he does it in one statement. My king is on the throne. And he keeps speaking now in verse 7 after that pause. What a pause, by the way. As for me, I've set my king on Zion. Now, I'm going to make a decree. You are my son. God speaks to this king that he has put over Zion. And says, you're my son.
It would have been enough for me to have been brought low, see my need to be saved. But God does something in verse 7. He says, my king is my son. The context of God's kingdom is greater than Israel. It's greater than her king David, the greater king, God's son. He'll be a son of David's, and he will reign on David's throne, so we always will see that connection. But God's king over Zion is his son. Maybe another way we could say it is his son king. (laughs) We never use that one, but it's true. And his son is Jesus, the anointed, back up in verse 2. The nations have been raging against God's anointed one, King Jesus, already reigning. King Jesus is the sovereign one, we find. In verse 8, the Son of God inherits the nations. Now, if you are a believer and if you're familiar with their New Testament, you're like, oh, I remember this. I remember this text. You're my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me. There are like three or more locations in the New Testament where they talk of Jesus and they point back and say, well, in particular, like in Hebrews, to any of the angels, who did he say this ever to any of the angels who are powerful and they're big? That you're my son. He did not. He says that of Jesus. There was ever a beeline to the Son of God and the messianic coming king. It's here in the text. You are my son. In verse 8, the Jesus, the king, inherits the nations. He takes possession of it. And you may be thinking, that sounds familiar too. Ask of me and I'll make the nations your heritage. And at the ends of your earth, excuse me, at the ends of the earth, I'll make the ends of the earth your possession. God's king, God's son is the sovereign king and he is given He has given all authority over the nations. Colossians, excuse me, Philippians chapter 2, if you would turn there with me. Philippians chapter 2. If I can find it, I may have turned to the wrong one. Let's begin reading in verse 8. And Jesus being, sorry, chapter 2, verse 8. And being found in human form, Jesus humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and has bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now we see why, and you can go back there. Now we see why those words may sound familiar to us. But if you're new to this, what he is saying is Jesus is made king, but something comes first. King Jesus will rule them. He will break them with that rod of iron that we find here shortly in verse 9. He'll dash them into pieces like potter's vessel. 
In Psalm 1-4, the wicked will be like chaff in the wind in comparison. Here we see them referred to as shattered pieces of a potter's vessel on the floor. We must see again the imagery of verse 9. Why the kingdoms of this world raging and plotting is utterly in vain. Those kingdoms are likened to a pottery easily dashed into pieces by one fell swoop of the iron rod of Jesus the King. Those rebellious nations and kings, they have set themselves against God and a day is coming, a day is coming on which they will see that they are ruled by him. On that day, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is the Lord. On that day in Revelations, we hear this picture. From his mouth comes a sharp sword when Jesus returns in which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, and he will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. That day is coming. On that day, it's too late. But not yet. Look back again with me at verse 4. He who sits in the heavens laughs and the Lord holds them in derision. This hasn't happened yet fully. Here's why. This King Jesus, God's Son, has come first to save. He has come to the very ones who rage against him, this king, this king Jesus will shed his royal blood on a cursed man's cross first. God's king, his only begotten son, will give his body to be broken for this world. God's king to be set on Zion, his holy hill. Jesus, the Son of God, will be made to be robed and crowned first in a very different robe and a very different crowd, a robe draped over his bloodied body and a crown of thorns jammed on his head as he, heaven's only true king, would first be spit upon as a blasphemer and punched in the face by the kings of this world. King Jesus would be handed over and to be tortured by another raging king of this world who mocked him and called him Jesus, the king of the Jews. Jesus would not first ascend up the holy hill to Zion, but rather he would ascend the hill of Golgotha and be nailed to a cross. King Jesus to be set on Zion gives his life for those who rage against him. Instead of God standing in fury and defending his beloved son, his holy and perfect righteous son bears the sins of sinners and receives upon himself the full force of God's wrath and fury. Jesus gets the full derision of God, the contemptuous scorn of his father first. Jesus, God's king, is God's son before he will rule with that iron rod. He'll become the lamb of God who takes away the sins of this world, the sins of the people that are raging and plotting against him. 
The day is coming when Jesus will return. He promised that he would return. So the kings of this world will rage against him and have been raging against him. He tells his disciples, they hate you because they first hated me. And yet the Lord responds that he will establish his king, his anointed one, on the throne over all the nations. He will come back. Right now is the time of salvation. Right now is the time for repentance. Right now the rod of iron has not been swung except only against the Son of God. But until that day, Jesus, instead of taking up the rod of iron, has taken up his cross. So the question for you and I is, do you belong to King Jesus? You daily struggle and daily struggle, and you're found in both of these very different kingdoms, idolatries and cravings, the joy and the gospel, that the Lord doesn't sit in mockery of us anymore. We should be the recipients of his full derision, shouldn't we? But because he has come to save, because he has borne our very raging and our very plotting against him on himself, when we turn to Christ in faith, we discover that all of the derision is poured out on his son instead of us. We can stop and sing, can't we? But we find here in this song that we must, we must respond. If you are without Christ this morning, hear Verse 10. If you are in Christ this morning, here, verse 10. Therefore, O kings, O people, be wise, be warned. O rulers of the earth, serve the Lord with fear. We can hear the appeal of the gospel in these words. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. We must respond. In the Lutheran hymnal, hymn number 610 is, Will the Judge Descend? How will my heart endure the terrors of that day when earth and heaven before his face, astonished, shrink away. Ye sinners, seek his grace, whose wrath ye cannot bear. Fly to the shelter of his cross and find salvation there. Believe in Christ. Now, we have this beautiful statement. In verse 12, kiss the Son. Kiss the Son. Kiss the Son lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Kiss the Son. What a beautiful picture again and call to the gospel. That kissing of the Son is one of bowing and paying homage to the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Kiss the King of God, His Son, kiss, now we know, the Lamb of God. Bow before Him, pay homage to Him. 
You and I will often in the sharing of the gospel say, believe in Christ, repent of your sins. Oh, summarize these beautiful words, kiss the sun is just that. Repent of your raging. Repent of your rebellion. Believe in the Son of God, the King. Kiss the Son. But hear the urgency. Lest he be angry and you perish in the way for his wrath is quickly kindled. And like, wait, I thought God was slow to wrath. He is. But the urgency for you and I, if we've been raging against him, is ratcheted up, kiss the sun. Do it quickly. Don't wait another day. Don't think you can figure out how to live with one foot in the kingdom of this world or one foot and one foot in the kingdom of God. He has called you to repent, kiss the sun. Maybe a question you could ask as we head into this. Is it really being in the kingdom of God while I keep one foot in the world possible? Come out of this world and kiss the Son of God. The Lamb of God is now here offering salvation to all who will believe. Anyone who will believe in God will be instantly translated, transferred out of the kingdom of this world and into his marvelous kingdom. What a great joy. So maybe we find that while at times we take our big toe, as it were, and we dip it into the kingdoms of this world, and we say, no, actually, I'm going to kind of go back, and I'm going to taste again that we find salvation was true to us. Conviction comes. Friends come. Salvation never departs. Now, when we get to the last statement, oh, remember the first bookend in chapter 1, verse 1, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked. Now here at the end of chapter two, blessed are all who take refuge in him. The overarching statement that we're finding in the psalm is happy is the man. That word blessed is happy, unbelievable happiness. It's happiness set free from the sinfulness of the world. Happiness set free from the sins of this world. Happy is the man that takes refuge in no other king but King Jesus. Eternal joy, true happiness awaits any man or woman who will turn to God, kiss the sun, and believe in Christ, and you will find happy is the man who takes refuge in no other king but King Jesus. Maybe your world has been rocked by suffering. Maybe your sin has been so bad you think it could never be forgiven. Maybe your innocence has been robbed by great evil of men. There's a refuge for you in this King Jesus. It is possible to have eternal joy, that joy that waits for that day that all the sorrow that we have right now will be wiped away. That's possible. It's possible for a man to be happy as we take refuge in no other king but King Jesus. It's possible. True happiness is found only in God's son. See that beautiful return. Blessed are all those who take refuge in him. When I say return, draw a line from him and in him to the son whom you have kissed. I could have the band come up. 
oftentimes we're surprised or we're caught off guard. Maybe for you this morning, you were cut off guard when you began to read the text, do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain, that you saw yourself somehow, somehow, as not part of them. That you're good. I'm fine. I'm not, I'm not of that rebel nation, that not that rebel, I'm not part of that rebel kingdom. And yet the surprise for you may be that you saw maybe for the first time, actually, I am part of them. I hear the plea and the call of God to turn and be wise and to kiss the sun, and I haven't. You can, and you can right now. It truly is one of those moments that we have in Acts chapter 2 where they are cut to the heart, those that are seeing and hearing of the good news. And Peter says, repent. Repent and believe in Christ. Maybe the surprise for you this morning was seeing that this King Jesus received God's derision. How is that even possible? He would willingly submit himself to the Father's wrath. But he did that for you. Maybe as a believer, it's been hard to sing and respond. Maybe it's just not you. You don't think like that. Well, you know what changed that? Do you know what takes quiet people and makes us noisy? Joy. I remember my dad, a quiet man. He could just sit quiet for hours and read and something really funny, exciting would hit him and a big old smile would strike over his face. But I also remember being at a campsite with my dad and him laughing so loud at something silly one of the kids did. He saw, he saw how, much he loved, how much he loved us and he would laugh so loud it would echo in the canyon that we camped in. But I remember... I remember being a boy, hearing his laughter. A very different laughter from what we heard of earlier. This laughter was one of full joy. Maybe for the surprise for you this morning, you are experiencing in a fresh way a joyful laughter from the Lord. You're not getting his derision. You're getting his joy and delight. Well, is that not enough to sing Let's sing. Let's sing together.